Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. Today on the show, Linda Yu, author of What Would the Great Economists Do? Why are wages so low? Okay, there are a number of reasons. Um, we know globalization, technology, but it's also because we have a lot of hidden unemployment. So people are working part time, and in this 21st century, where the economy is very dominated by technology that has hollowed out middle skill jobs,、mm-hmm. people are not able to get the same quality of jobs that they had before. Welcome to the Better Off podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. We've always said that this is the program where you can get access to some of the smartest people, but also that it's entertaining. It's about your money and your life. And what's more important than what's going on in the news cycle right now and how to make sense of it? So today we have a, an incredibly awesome guest, Linda Yu, who's a former lawyer turned economist. Has just written a book called What Would the Great Economists Do? How 12 Brilliant Minds Would Solve Today's Biggest Problems. Perhaps you were snoozing during Econ 101. You can read this book and just basically get Econ 101 in one book. And she's entertaining and she's smart. Oh, and did I mention she's also a China expert? That's why we are delighted to have her on the program today. Stay tuned. This is an amazing interview. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, we have a special privilege today to have a incredibly brilliant, well spoken economist on the program. We've only had one other economist, and you'll be happy to be in good company, Linda Yu, because it was Mohammed El Arian, and、um, he's been on twice. Linda is an economist and、uh, an author of many books, the most recent of which is What Would the Great Economists Do? How 12 Brilliant Minds Would Solve Today's Biggest Problems. So, Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. All right, let's go back in time for a second. When we have anybody come on the program, we ask a question to start the show and then we'll ask a bookend question to end the show. I wonder for an economist how you're going to, men- how you're going to field this. What is the best financial decision you've ever made? Buying a house. Oh, everybody says that. <laughs> and, and that was buying a house in London where you live.、Yes. And, and when did you do that? Oh, so I did it about、uh, seven years ago. Oh, wait a minute. So, right after the financial crisis? Yeah, so there was a little dip in house prices. And you said, yeah, that's right. Jumping right in there. <laughs> Usually, economists don't make such good concrete decisions like so that. So true. Right? So true. How is it that you. Wanted to study economics. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I was really interested in how、um, people become better off. So, one of the things that really interests me about economics is just how it allows you to look at how different countries, different policies affect different people. And then ultimately,、um, that is what I think、uh, public policy. What economists, what really all of us should be really concerned about.、Um, can we grow richer over time?、Um, are people's living standards getting better? So I thought the way to understand it is to study economics. And where did you study? So, story of your life. You were born where? I was born in Taiwan. Okay.、Uh, I moved to the US when I was around six,、mm-hmm. uh, five or six. And I then、uh, started my career as a corporate lawyer. At Paul Weiss. Hold on right now. Stand by. We're go- I got to go back. I got to do a little backfill here. Where, where did you grow up? What state did you grow up? So, Pennsylvania and then Texas. 
And you studied law where? At NYU. Uh-huh. And then I stayed here. And you work at Paul. Firm. You work for the man. Yeah. White shoe law firm <laughs> in, in corporate law? In corporate law. And then I felt that I didn't really understand how really markets worked. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of stuff around uh, M&A, around uh, companies investing. Uh, you know, this is really interesting. But I just felt like I didn't really understand how economies really worked. I was looking at only a piece of it. So mm-hmm. then I went to Oxford University in England to study it. And then that's actually when I became really interested in economics. And then I didn't really set out to to kind of stay there, but I, I think I've ended up finding, um, you know, lots of interesting things to do there. And then, of course, as you know, um, I became a broadcaster. I then uh, joined Bloomberg TV as their um, economics editor. And then I went to the BBC and I was chief business correspondent. And so now um, I'm still doing a bit of broadcasting. I am doing a bit of teaching. And of course, I have the real privilege of writing books, which I've thoroughly enjoyed and just being able to go out, talk about ideas, meeting people. And the best part about uh, this book coming out is that I get to be back in New York. Aha, uh-huh, that's excellent. And and really what you needed to do is to create a career that would give you enough flexibility to walk your three dogs. Absolutely. These you are know, your children. These are the most important focal points of anyone's day. The, the waking up, got to let the dogs out, take the dogs out. You say you got that down. Okay. <laughs> so the other thing that it it, that from my uh, research on you, which really is Mark's research that he presents to me, is that you have become a, a China expert, essentially, mm. right? Mm. And um, because China is so much in the news right now, I just thought we would start with a bit of a China boot camp around um, for most of our listeners, they hear me say things like China's the second largest economy in the world, like get used to it. Could you give us a little bit of the history of why we are so focused on China, its economy? And then I do want to get into a bit of the trade issue. So China was an agrarian economy until when? Until about 1949. So that's when the communists took over. And that was when they industrialized the country. So economies grow because they're first agrarian, um, they're, it's farming and all of that. And then West had the Industrial Revolution, um, which didn't happen in China, actually. That mm-hmm. happened in uh, England, in Germany, and the U.S. in the 19th century. So China was lagging behind by the 20th century. It was still mostly a agrarian, agricultural economy. And then the communists took over in 1949. And then they did a pretty hard and harsh program of industrialization. So um, think of it as five-year plans. They followed the way Stalin did it for the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, And then by 79, that clearly wasn't working. This planned economy just doesn't, just can't tell you how many things to produce because you've got one central planner sitting in Beijing saying, I think across the country we are going to produce 20,000 pairs of shoes today. It just doesn't work and Mm. you don't know how much to sell it for. So in 79, they started market-oriented reforms. And by injecting capitalism into the economy, that's why we notice China today because it has grown extremely quickly since that time and has now become the world's second biggest economy. But it is still, I think, an economy we 
focus on because we don't quite understand it. It still has a communist party in charge. Right. But the economy is full of entrepreneurs and some of the most capitalist people you'll meet. And I think the highest percentage of female billionaires in the world are from China. How does that work? I mean, this is state-sponsored capitalism with a dash of communism. How does that play out in, in real life? How does, how does an entrepreneur exist in that system? Most of the entrepreneurs that I've met in China, they basically try to work under the radar. Mm-hmm. So not in the spotlight of government. So the Chinese government um, clamps down a lot on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. They're very worried about information um, and all of those things that are actually the lifeblood of a lot of tech entrepreneurs. So in many ways, China has succeeded despite government policy. I think mm-hmm. that is, if you look at the growth drivers, it's really private enterprises, private firms that have really grown. And they don't really get uh, much involved with government. So I think that's one of the challenges uh, with China. So. You have a communist party in charge. They have a political regime that is not really conducive to how the market economy works. Mm -hmm. Somehow it's worked. Um, And it's, I think, um, quite a puzzle in and of itself. But when you're the world's second biggest economy, having this very confusing system will cause others to take a look and say, are your firms competing fairly? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that I think is one of the main reasons why internationally China is in the spotlight. If you look at where that the state enters the conversation. Often that will converge around trade. And so we're having big tariff tough talk from President Trump right now, retaliation from the EU, from Mexico, from Canada, threats from both sides, China and the U.S. What is true about the unfair quote? I'm putting air quotes on there for everyone who's not watching. What is unfair about the way China treats U.S. goods and services that come into China? Uh, Two ways. One is that the Chinese market isn't as open as the American one. So it's easier for companies like Alibaba to come and set up here than it is for the um, equivalent company to go and set up there. So Alibaba is a B2B and B2C um, website. They kind of link up suppliers and they um, they have web portals to sell products into China. Um, But they've set up in the U.S., Um, But if you think about a tech company, similarly Mm -hmm. in the internet space, the Chinese market just isn't as open. Mm -hmm. So that is not a level playing field. I think the other way is that for many years, China's required technology transfers if you wanted to invest in China. So if you are a a smartphone maker, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, if you set up in China, you're going to have to transfer know-how. Sometimes it's because you have to hire local Chinese managers when you work alongside people. That's actually one of the ways to transfer know-how how and technology. Um, but of course, that isn't something that American markets require. To set up here, you don't have to have a joint venture. So that in China has begun to be uh, pushed um, quite hard against by the World Trade Organization, this global trade body, and its trading partner. So a lot of investment in China today is no longer joint ventures. They don't really require technology transfers. But they have a history of having done that. And they also have a weak legal system. So they don't protect intellectual property very well. So I think in those ways, there is there is a history of unequal market access, mm-hmm. of uh, treating foreign firms not quite the same as um, 
Chinese firms. But the thing I always like to say is private Chinese firms are also treated this way. Uh-huh. So That's interesting. It's state-owned firms that are privileged. So it's really, I think, about state ownership versus private um, firms. So Alibaba that I mentioned is a private firm. Do you sense that that will change in the next iteration as China becomes the world's largest economy, just in size, not per capita, because obviously, you know, they have extra people, so it's not going to work. The math's not going to work there. But is that going to have to change? Mm. Well, um, in the book, the chapter um, that I trace through the great thinkers, one of the the chapters is called Can China Grow Rich? And I think my answer there is yes, except they are going to have to shed some of the communist, some of the Karl Marx influence that they currently still have in the system, mostly around state ownership of key industries and key assets. So in order for China to grow rich, they have to be a lot more productive, a lot more innovative. It's hard to see how they can do that while you have a dominance of the state in key sectors, but importantly, in the banking sector. How can an entrepreneur get finance, get a loan? Those are the kinds of things they're going to have to work through. And I completely agree with you. I think China will become the world's biggest economy. They've got a billion more people than the Americans, but that's not the same thing as growing rich. So what about the idea that as they become, let's say they don't get rich yet, but on the way, they they did something that's pretty amazing, which is they lifted so many people out of poverty. Do you sense that there could be a, a pushback by the people almost like a unionization, a labor pushback that would help the people start to do better in the Chinese economy. I think that is exactly where the pressure will come from. So in a communist state, you don't have any safety valves. So if people don't feel like the state is respecting their their property um, firms um, and their investment, um, your ownership of a home, because everything is nominally communally owned, owned by the state, I think that is exactly where you're going to get some push to change the system. And I think that is probably the single biggest um, issue Um, that will determine whether China becomes rich. As you look forward in this trade nonsense, it is a little bit of nonsense. It's not, some of it's real and some of it is nonsense. Some of it's just bluster. Where do you think it's going to end up? Do you think that we are headed towards some sort of trade tiff turned conflict turned war with China? Oh, I hope not. Um, I don't hope not either. Yeah, because you win a trade war when it's over. Mm. Uh, So I think that we are likely um, to see a greater opening of China as a result of um, U.S. pressure. Because remember, for many, many years, the Europeans, the Americans, they've been complaining about Chinese markets not being open. Mm -hmm. So a good thing that could come out of this is that China realizes it's a major trading country. It needs to be more open. Um, What I worry about is if this escalates, so they don't come to an agreement on how open is open, because obviously there's open and there's really open, as in freely invest. I don't think China will go that far. And the other thing they can't fix quickly 
is intellectual property rights protection. That takes a long time to fix a legal system, which is very underdeveloped in a communist um, state. Spoken from the former lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) But that's actually improving because Chinese firms want to protect their IP. Ah. And so I think there's a bit of a timing issue here. So what you could see is that both America and China start to restrict each other's investment. That, to me, would be one of the worst outcomes because now you're telling Mm. companies like Apple where to put their supply chains. And that is hard to reverse. Slapping tariffs or taxes on steel, um, that can be reversed very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But once a company starts to say, okay, I'm not manufacturing in China because um, uh, this is uh, being restricted by the government there and governments here don't want Chinese companies to invest here, those decisions are really hard to change. And that's my big worry about um, where we seem to be headed. But I'm always optimistic. You are? That it'll be Wait a minute. Resolved. You're not an economist then. <laughs> I know. It's a dismal science. It's I know. Right? Clearly, I'm in the wrong profession. Right? I, but I'm optimistic that sometimes behind the bluster, what you're really finding is trade policies don't work that well. And there's lots of reasons they don't work. So we talked about this unlevel, you know, unlevel playing field mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. Within countries, they don't necessarily work that well either because there are people who are left behind by globalization and by trade. So I think what I really enjoyed about writing this book is understanding how economic ideas have been revised throughout history. Something works and then it doesn't work and then you tweak it and then you move to the next stage. So I always see this as an opportunity to rethink what economic policy should be. So here's my question to you. You you created this book, What Would the Great Economists Do? Did you come up with the questions first or the economists that you wanted to highlight and then frame the questions? Oh, great question. Um, I actually came up with the questions um, first mm-hmm. because I think the most interesting things um, or the most pressing things that we need to uh, have a better understanding of are things like, why are wages so low? Do we face a slow growth future? And by looking at the biggest questions facing us today, I realized that you know, that saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, something similar happened um, in history that we could learn from. And that's actually where the the, um, great economists um, that came up with those ideas um, that's how I chose those. That's I, I love the I like the framework for it. So let's start with. So we talked about can China become rich, and that's how you get into a discussion of Karl Marx. So, by the way, everyone listening, stop freaking out. It's a book that is written for non-economists. Okay, uh, yeah. that's right. So yeah. it's very normal. There's no there's no formula that it's is, very okay, accessible. It's very, like reading one of my blogs. That's you it's know, perfect. Written, yeah. By the way, not a lot of female economists out there. No. So who do we have? We have Janet Yellen. <laughs> Janet Yellen. We have a- <laughs> Is Lael Brenner uh, an actual is is Lael an yeah. actual economist, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we got we got Lael. That's yeah. good. We got you. <laughs> Tell us about Joan Robinson. She's a little bit of a funky one, though. She she has a strange life. In yeah. His, so talk about who who is Joan Robinson. So Joan Robinson is one of the most influential economists, female economists of the 20th century. She um, is the one who came up with the idea of monopsony. So now that's just like monopoly, where you have um, product market power so you can you know set higher prices for your goods and all that kind of stuff monopsony is when employers um, can set wages below what a worker should be paid so she came up with this in the 1930s um, having never really um, 
done economics. Um, she did a degree at Cambridge, but she didn't actually do that well. <laughs> and then she had to come up with a great idea to, to you know, to, to make her stance. And so she, in, this, in the period of the 1930s, she made a huge name for herself. And she became one of the five members of John Maynard Keynes's inner circle who wow. were trusted to read the general theory, his book that launched the Keynesian revolution. And at the time, she was married to one other member of this inner circle, and she had an affair with another member. So I like to think she kind of held three out of five, a majority <laughs> of votes on this little council. <laughs> oh, and then she renounced Keynesianism later That's on. That's what her, I want to get yeah, to. So, yeah. so wait a second. Before we do that, okay, you have a separate chapter about Keynes, but can you just do a quickie Keynesian theory 101 yeah. for the listeners? So Keynesianism said... Economies don't write themselves. So if you're in a recession or the Great Depression, as in the 1930s, government needs to spend to help the economy. And that was actually um, a bit of a revelation because classical economists, the mainstream thinking at the time was economies will write themselves. You don't want to government to be involved. And Keynes said famously, in the long run, we're all dead. So we need to do something now. Right. And that was uh, one of the re- rationales that Bernanke hauled out and said, well, if Congress isn't going to spend the money, then we, the Federal Reserve, got to step in here and do something. Right. So Joan Robinson, going back, three out of five. Uh, so she's she's a part of the, the Keynesian inner circle. And she really wants to talk about income. And tell us how her career developed then. So she did this path-breaking work around imperfect competition, which is where all her labor and wages and theories came from. And this is just, to me, fascinating, right? So since Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, economists thought that economies were perfectly competitive. It took until the 1930s before Keynes and her and some other um, of his disciples um, said, no, actually, the markets don't operate perfectly. And so if they don't, we need to look at why and then what we can do about it. And then so she then published works that basically said, when labor markets don't work perfectly, two things happen. One is that wages are too low because Mm -hmm. um, employers don't have to pay you um, what you've produced. And the second thing is you end up with what's what's called hidden or disguised unemployment. So, again, this has to do with um, actually it's the the U6 unemployment measure. So if you have a part-time job but you want a full-time job, you're not unemployed. You have a job, but you actually are underemployed. So she calls that hidden or disguised unemployment. So once you recognize the problem, then you can say, all right, we need more competition to fix it. And to me, she was her work has been one of the most influential in thinking about even today if you take that and look at the low wage problem that we have, which is the the, um, the aim of that chapter, why are wages so low? Okay, there are a number of reasons. Um, we know globalization, technology, but it's also because we have a lot of hidden unemployment. So people are working part-time, and in this 21st century where the economy 
is very dominated by technology that has hollowed out middle skill jobs, mm-hmm. people are not able to get the same quality of jobs that they had before. It reminded me of when I went to this um, this talk, um, actually by President Bill Clinton. Um, oh, by so somebody. This is being, yeah. So this some has been guy. going on for some time. I mean, a woman in the audience raised their hand and said, Mr. President, um, you talk about all these jobs you've created. I've got three of those jobs and I can't make ends meet. Mm. So when you think about that, I just want to spend a few minutes on the income inequality because, uh, you know, I was sort of fascinated with the Piketty book and with a lot of this conversations around income inequality. And, you know, when we talk about income inequality, so often the the culprit or the scapegoat is low-wage jobs in emerging markets. So whether it's China or anywhere, you know, emerging Asia, and that is the problem. That's how the middle class got screwed and hollowed out. Uh, I'm wondering if you have an opinion on what weight we should give to all the different factors Mm. that contributed to this. So China entering, you know, sort of becoming more legitimate part of the World Trade Organization, that's part of it. So we call that globalization. Mm. But talk about technology in that also. Yeah. And, and and what portion of this problem, and the problem is pretty intense because we really do know that we have not seen real meaningful wage growth for the middle class in basically two decades. Is that right? Yeah, 40 years if you take median income. Mm-hmm. So um, it is an incredibly, um, I think, challenging problem. So most of it is actually down to technology. So yes, globalization, I think, played a bigger role, um, you know, a few decades ago when China was poor. Now that Chinese wages are rising, you actually see manufacturing reshoring. Mm-hmm. So Stanley Black & Decker have made the first power tool in the United States. The CEO told me, um, I write about it in the book, it costs the same to make a power tool in China as in the US huh. because American workers are more productive. But when he says that, it also points to something else, which is even if you remove um, some of the globalization factors, you still have to look at what is still causing wages to be um, depressed. Right. Technology has replaced repetitive tasks, manufacturing jobs, really in the middle mm. of the skill spectrum. So if you go to a factory today, there are a lot of robots that produce those kinds of cars or power tools, whatever you have. Yes, of course, it makes the workers who are in jobs more productive, but it also means they've displaced a lot of workers. So if you look at what's happened to manufacturing, manufacturing output has grown. Right. We still are manufacturers terms. in the United States, exactly. in Germany, Second in, biggest in, in the UK, world, right? The so, United States is. But so, manufacturing jobs down. are down. Okay. And that's technology. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Linda Yu in just a moment. You know, one of the things I love about talking to really smart, confident people is they kind of get rid of all the jargon. They take complex concepts, they break it down, and they feed it to us in a way that we can actually absorb it. And that is one of Linda Yu's great, great skills. And it's also one of the benefits that you can have by working with a company that can take complex investing strategies and use technology to make them more efficient. That is what our sponsor Betterment does. And they have designed a really cool service to help customers build wealth. 
plan for retirement and achieve their financial goals. In other words, Betterment's mission is to help their customers make the most of their money. And it's kind of cool because you know I love dropping an F-bomb on this program. Betterment is a fiduciary, and that means they are making recommendations in their client's best interest. They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds. They don't have their own investment products to sell. It's all about the customer. But you, a listener of Better Off, you can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. That's Betterment.com slash Better Off. And now back to our interview with Linda Yu. So what is the answer here? Channel Joan Robinson, what what can we do to help wages? How do we address it? Yeah, so wage growth of 2.7%, um, that is better than inflation, but just barely. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to take a lot more to raise those wages. The way to do it, I think, are probably twofold. So one is workers have to be more flexibly trained and skilled to be able to move around in this economy more so than ever before. It's easier said than done, but I have met, while I've been doing this book talk, 50-some-year-olds who are learning to code. So obviously that's not going to be everyone, but I think we just have to make sure that we are more nimble. The workforce is more nimble, and that is a different way of thinking about education. So we need a more dynamic, flexible workforce And is there anything from a policy perspective, especially, all right, so we're going to get into another chapter, which is this idea about how the government rebalances economies, Mm -hmm. because I think that that's slightly different, but it goes back to Adam Smith. But it is this sense that should the government intervene in the overall economy to make things better in certain ways? So let's get into that for a second. First of all, as you say, Adam Smith, he's numero uno. He's the first chapter. You say, I wanted you to start with Joan, but it's okay. I'm willing to go with the guy because he's old. It's chronological, actually. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, Adam Smith, kind of the father of, of economics, economics yeah. right? Should the government rebalance the economy? Channel Adam Smith for us. He would say no. He would say, um, when the government intervenes, you're just going to get it wrong. <laughs> and sometimes that's and, true. Yeah. And I think, um, but what he would say is that, um, so a couple of things. One is that there is a role for government, but um, as he puts it, it's to support the market, it's to have a good legal system, and it's to do the things the market can't do. So things like make sure that we have good transport. So he was very, very clear in the more narrow role that the government should play. He would not agree with a government coming in to say, all right, the economy has too many uh, people in finance, so therefore we need uh, more, uh, you know... Uh, Coders. Yeah, or, or what have you. He wouldn't agree with that. The one thing, though, I would say is in his time, so he wrote in the 18th century, this is during the Industrial Revolution, so in England he's seeing all these factories come up, The one thing he doesn't like, and this is a a product of his time, he doesn't like the services sector. So if he realized that today, the United States economy, it's mostly services, um, he just placed no value in services. He thought what lawyers did or what um, people did in services, musicians had no, you can't trade it, there's no store of value. He he really, really valued manufacturing. So I just wonder what he would say when he looks at this economy, he might say, how do we end up with such a 
big services sector. But of course, you couldn't have foreseen that musicians can sell their performances and right. things like you know downloads now. Right, CDs, you can monetize so. services exactly. in a different way. Exactly. So, um, in talking about rebalancing the economy, I just want to bring up China again because you know it seems to me that there is an this is one great advantage you have with state-sponsored capitalism mm-hmm. is that the Chinese government can say, yeah, actually, we should rebalance this economy. So can you just go into a little bit of a discussion about what the Chinese government is doing to try to address this idea of like, hey, we used to be huge manufacturers. Mm. Now we need to change to something else. So explain that. Now they are a more of a services-based economy. So services is now bigger than manufacturing in the Chinese economy. And that is a conscious product of the government uh, moving away from um, investing too much. So the downside of investing too much is not just overcapacitating things like steel, which they have been um, pushing onto world markets. That's certainly the, one of the longstanding sources of tension even before President Trump came into office. And the other thing is that they really want to have have um, a lot of jobs because in a communist system, uh, you really want to maintain stability. So if you think about manufacturing, it's capital intensive mm-hmm. um, and services are labor intensive, as in people do services mm. and factories do um, manufacturing. So what they don't want is an economy that doesn't produce enough jobs because of technological change. The same things we're talking about in America, they're worried about too, the loss of middle income jobs. They don't want that money instead of going into manufacturing to go into housing, that's even worse. Then you get ghost cities, then you have a debt problem. So instead, they've moved it towards services. But I would say their task was made easier because as an economy becomes middle income, it moves into services anyways. Yeah. All advanced economies have deindustrialized and moved into services. But what they are doing doing. And I think this is something to think about. They are moving down a German model. So they are going to maintain manufacturing, um, high-tech manufacturing in particular. I don't know how easy that'll be for them to do because innovation, despite all their plans, just hasn't really worked that well in China, unsurprisingly. Governments are not that good actually in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's the plan. So they don't want to become like the U.S. Um, they want to be more like Germany, okay. which has maintained a bigger manufacturing base. Right. Before we finish up, let's see. What chapter do you want to highlight last? Because I, I, uh, I can't do every single one. And we want the people to buy the book. This is called The Big Tease, right? <laughs> so which is the chapter that you want to concentrate on next? Why don't we do um, Irving Fisher? Um, Just because my pen is on that chapter and it's open. I think this chapter is very relevant to today. So that's why I... (laughs) Glad that we agree. Okay. So uh, this is chapter five. Irving Fisher, are we at risk of repeating the 1930s? So now we are actually coming up onto the 10-year anniversary of the failure of Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis. So... Are we at risk of repeating not just the 30s, but also are we about to see something as maybe the second wave of the Great Recession? Mm, Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think um, we are lucky that we haven't ended up um, repeating some of the mistakes they made in the 1930s. So what happened in 1930s was after the Great Crash of 1929, there was a second recession 
um, at the end of the 1930s. And it was because of policymakers making mistakes. So that's the lesson, I think, that policymakers today have learned from Irving Fisher. He's the guy who came up with the concept of debt deflation, as in when you have a lot of debt, you end up with deflation. Prices fall. You can look at Japan, a country that probably didn't learn the lessons mm. of what you don't you don't want to end up with after you have a big financial crash. So I think, um, you know, knock on wood, this table is not wood, no. that we have already learned a lot of the, um, the most important lessons about making sure that you don't end up in a deflationary mindset, because that's essentially what's happened in Japan. If you expect prices to fall, Consumers put off their purchases because it'll be cheaper in the future. And when you all have that mindset, it's so hard to turn it around. It's not just a question of the central bank printing cash because the Bank of Japan has done a lot of that. And so I think the economy is on a stronger recovery than we have seen over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Monetary policy, interest rates are beginning to go up. So things are moving back to normal, Mm -hmm. but it's going slowly. And Mm -hmm. I think that is because um, central bankers and others are looking at what happened in the 30s and thinking, okay, we don't want to end up um, in any way repeating what was a very, very difficult decade. Do you credit Ben Bernanke for his actions during the crisis is sort of saving the system? I, I do. I think he um, is actually discussed in that chapter. His academic work um, builds on Irving Fisher's research. So he takes Fisher's theories and he adapts it for the modern economy. So there's a financial sector in there. So I think Ben Bernanke realized that it was better to do too much than to do too little. You're never going to get it quite right. Right. And I think so initially when he stepped in and said, yeah, okay, we're going to have to reflate the economy. And that's when quantitative easing, cash injections, slashing interest rates to 0%. I think all of that plus a big rescue plan for the banks that didn't have any stigma attached if you were to tap the liquidity. I think he kept the system um, afloat. I think probably is what's more debatable is how long the system should have been maintained over the past 10 years. And that's more of a judgment cause. So Janet Yellen and, of course, now Jay Powell, they have, I think, you know, I think they are now moving towards a more normal, mm-hmm. um, you know, interest rate. And, and But I think in the aftermath of Lehman's collapse in 2008, and we saw what happened um, with all the linkages in the financial system, I think it was probably right to err on the side of just doing a bit too much. Yeah. But here's the challenge. Robert Solo, who I write about, uh, the Solo Paradox he coined says, you can see the computer age everywhere except in the productivity data. Hmm. So today's technologies do not raise productivity the way they used to across the economy. Right, because if swiping left and right doesn't really do ton for us. <laughs> no, apparently. <laughs> apparently, um, uh, the, uh, it's not quite the same as electrification exactly. or the internal combustion Exactly. <laughs> we, we, you know, we went from like, oh, it's the advent of air conditioning versus yes. swiping left and right. <laughs> That's right. And that's the challenge. So one of the things that I look at in that chapter about how do we avoid a slow-growth future, is where you have spurts of um, productivity picking up is in the late 1990s. So what happened there in the U.S. was um, companies worked harder to incorporate, embed technology in the way that the 
they work.、Mm. So instead of just focusing on big innovations like I'm going to produce the next iPhone or you know, what have you, you actually take the technology and you make sure it actually improves how your company operates. So one of the、mm. examples you can think of is, and this is of course close to my heart. I used to be a lawyer. Is AI now can do the kind of due diligence that、um, junior associates used to do? So that frees up those lawyers to do something else. So I think technology has to be viewed not just as big breakthroughs. We're never going to have another invention of the steam engine or、mm. electricity. But what we can do is to make sure the technology of today help us work. Better and more efficiently. I think that's the key to raising、um, our growth rate: is to have this technology better embedded. And of course, I'm not against having some tech that can improve your welfare and your and your life as well. Right. That's one of the nice things about、um, you know thinking about、um, where these great economists.、Um, Uh, predicted because remember we've had 200 years of extraordinary growth and prosperity、mm. even in some of the most deprived parts of the world, and we live in、um, you know we live in abundant times. So John Maynard Keynes 100 years ago he predicted that by around 2030 we'd all be working 15-hour weeks. I、he、wish he said nobody should have to work more than three hours a day because <laughs> at that point yes of course you need to grow but you also need to think about your well-being. You also need to think about how technology can improve. Livelihood, so it's never just about growth. It's also about the quality of growth and standards of living. I think that is a wonderful place to uh, conclude. Uh, when we leave the program, we asked our guest, we asked our guests、uh, the bookend question. You said your best financial decision was buying a house. What was your worst? Not buying a house sooner. <laughs> <laughs> you know、uh, that that's、uh, that's a good one. All right, I'll leave it at that, Linda. We are so absolutely delighted. I've learned so much. The book is great. What would the great economists do? By Linda Yu. How twelve brilliant minds would solve today's biggest problems. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your brilliant. You're brilliant. Oh, This stop! This is so much fun.、Stop、Thank、it. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much to Linda. You go get her book. It's fantastic. What would the great economists do? Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer extraordinaire. We are distributed by Cadence Thirteen, and we are sponsored by Betterment. See you next week. 